today on the care podcast, uh, we're going to be talking about burns management. We're very, very grateful to have uh, as a guest here. Uh, if you'd like to introduce yourself, I'm Sanjay Varma. I'm the director of the uh, Super Regional Burn Centre in Newcastle. We cover an area from the border of Scotland, Cumbria, to the lakes, and then across to North Yorkshire. Thank you, Sanjay. Uh, we're going to be talking through a, a case today simply for the, the uh, ICM registrar working in, in, in the hospital with, without, without a burns unit and how we'd, how we'd run through that management. As a sort of typical example, 3am, an ICU doctor is, is bleeped down to recess. There's been a house fire and a 30-year-old man has been brought in by ambulance to recess. Uh, as I said, the, the hospital uh, it is not a burn centre. Before that patient arrives, what sort of things should the doctor, do you think, be, be thinking about? You should be um, thinking about, obviously, ABC, looking at his airway, you know, house fires. You want to have a gas, see what it is, because it's an enclosed space. You might get an explosion, so you might have some barotrauma. Do they have any other associated trauma other than soot and a burn? It's quite possible that they've been brought out by the ambulance uh, and fire brigade. Find out a little bit about what happened. Are they talking? Do they sound coherent? If they're in recess, you've got to work out whether or not you're going to intubate them or not. And uh, have they got a burn? Can you get rid of some of the soot? What's their temperature? So if they're hypothermic, hypothermia with big burns is a very, very bad sign. And so if it's not a burn and it's a big smoke inhalation, you've got to work out what you think is going to happen to them over the next 24, 48 hours. Do they have a supraglottic injury? Is it glottic? Is it subglottic? Are they able to speak cohesively? Do they have any other injuries? So all of that needs to be established fairly quickly. And then you want to work out just basics. What are they like initially and how you want to proceed with that? And once you've assessed the patient and people have assessed what the plan is in a DGH, do you refer them to a specialized center? And how is that transfer going to be facilitated? And what advice or what do you need to know? So let's say sort of on, on arrival, on the patient's arrival, are there any sort of big sort of warning signs for you that, or even sort of subtle signs that you, you might, might sort of make you particularly worried about that patient or might sort of change your immediate management? I think a lot really depends are when they come in to, to A&E, are they speaking? If they're not intubated, are they speaking? Have they got a hoarse voice? Can they cough? How do they feel when they're breathing in and out? Was it an explosion? Because if you get barotrauma early, it's not always appreciated how much of a lung injury you're going to find four days down the line. And it's usually at day four, day five in an explosion that you get a big injury. So how you manage that is vital. Now, if you've got a burn, it's always easier to extubate them later than intubate them after you start to recess. Work out whether or not you want to intubate them. Make sure you secure your airway and then you can look at everything else. That judgment call is having a look. Have a look at the back of the throat. It's very easy. Is there soot there? Have they been breathing in a lot of soot? Is that house fire? How much is involved in that? 
if you've got soot and they're covered in soot, you can't see anything, you know that soot is probably down their lungs and you know you're going to have trouble very shortly. If there's a flame and it's a house fire, how much heat was involved? What's going on with their clothes? Do their clothes catch fire? How many people were in the, in the house? How are they all? All of that. That also adds up. It's an assessment primarily and then working out what the plan is going to be. So it sounds as a very, very general rule, but it sounds like it's a lot safer to intubate a patient kind of early and then be able to extubate them for a few days. I think so. I think that, I mean, there's a lot of talk that we probably intubate too many patients. Uh, and realistically, probably do. But the problem is what happens if you get the one patient you wish you had intubated and then you can't see their airway and you can't get a tube in. And then you're thinking, oh, my gosh, what we've got to do. Maybe that's a wee bit old fashioned, but I think a lot of it is make sure the patient's safe. Obviously, the, the typical things are that so ideally intubate the big uncut tube, still the way to go. I think so. I think uh, for a burn, for example, if you have a big burn, so anything above 40% body surface area, you know you're going to be giving them a lot of fluid. If you nasally intubate them, then the maxilla doesn't move that much. It might move about a centimetre if you give them a lot of fluid. If you put an oral tube in, then that'll move maybe about between five and 10 centimetres and you can extubate and you won't be able to get it back in. If you do it orally, you can get a big tube in and you can wire it to the teeth, but that's not always possible. So just be aware in terms of if you're in a DGH, and you need to transfer them. Uh, how long is the transfer? What do you need to sort it out? I think gases at arrival is a useful thing, certainly in a house fire. Good access is a useful thing. Expose the patient having a look and seeing how what you think a size of burn is without trying to cool them down too much because big burns and hypothermia is a really bad sign. And patients, if they're excreted from a house fire, they usually be doused in water and most water is not warm. So they're getting really cold. If you imagine that, you know, you have a scenario where you've got a big burn and you've doused them in water and they come in and their core temperature is 34, 35, your clotting's not going to be good. So if you take them to theatre at that sort of level, they're going to bleed. They're going to bleed everywhere and you've got trouble. So you really want to keep them quite warm and work out what the initial injury is. So if you can uh, work out, do they have a burn? Do they have any other injuries? Keep them warm primarily. Do they need to go to a specialist centre? Do they need admitting to uh, intensive care, what do you think is going to happen? And I think a lot of that is a discussion and working out what you need to do. So in, in terms of, sort of predicting severity, can you can you sort of predict severity and mortality sort of almost, almost as the patient comes through the door? The you can. Time? There's a, something called a BOW score, B-A-U-X, which is if you take the percentage of body surface area as a burn, that has been involved and you add the age, if it's over 100, they usually die. If uh, you have an inhalation injury, you can add another 17 onto that. And if you've got a pneumonia, then you probably add another 20 to 30. And so then you can get figures of about 150, 160 mark. And usually that's not survivable. But, you know, we've had 
patients who've had those higher figures who have survived. So there's discussion always along the way in terms of the plan of action. I think the plan in terms of what you do or do not do uh, is fairly critical in the first 24 hours. And you mentioned about sort of explosions as well. And um, I mean, is that if there's been an explosion, how does that change your management or, or your prediction of, of maybe what's going to happen to the patient? Barotrauma, by its very nature, is not always obvious. Say, for example, you've done the best, in, you've got a big nasal tube in, you've got them secured, you've scanned them, you've worked out that they've got no other injury other than a big burn. They're admitted to ITU. They may be, may or may not be post-op from excision. It's usually they will ventilate fairly well. And it's usually a day four, day five when barotrauma really comes into play. Because what will happen is they become leaky and you'll find that your ventilation pressure is rocking, usually around about day four, day five. And when that happens, then we sometimes end up pruning them. And there's been a few couple who we've considered for ECMO. A lot of it is predictable. I had a patient who is a pheasant farmer. And so he turned on the gas, the barn exploded, and he had a big burn, came in. And really day five, day four, he went off, which is on a weekend. And he was a big man. He was about 140 kilos with a 70% burn. If you think about that in terms of fluid regimes, you're probably looking about giving them 40 liters of fluid in the first 24, 36 hours, which is a lot. And then we didn't appreciate how much of a barrow injury he had until his wife said, no, there was uh, 600 birds died. The barn door came off and it knocked over a tree in front of the barn door. So when you actually find out what actually happened, because this man came into recess speaking, and unless you find out what happens, you can't really predict. So barotrauma is fairly unpredictable. So getting a proper history. We didn't find that history out from the patient when he came in before he got intubated. We only found out from his wife maybe four or five days later that this had all happened. So almost going on from that, are there any sort of particular injuries in, in burns patients that have any cause really that, that get missed or, or people just don't think about maybe? I think it's the electrical type injuries, which people probably underestimate or not quite sure how to manage them. I think the, not the household electrical injuries, I'm talking about substations, metro stations, people stealing copper wire or walking on top of metro trains, these sort of type injuries. Now, if you get an arc of electricity for, say, for example, the uh, East Coast Main Line and someone's beside it, okay, high voltage arc of electricity and say it arcs in front of you, what happens is normal gases will vaporize given the amount of electrical discharge. There's a huge amount of light created, huge amount of heat created, and you'll vaporize those gases to two, three, 4,000 degrees Celsius. So you get a burn from the light and the heat released. But if you inhale that, then you've got a huge respiratory injury. So you're inhaling superheated gases. If you don't inhale it at the time, then, you, you might get away with it and all you've got is a cutaneous burn. 
sometimes the injury, if you inhale it, usually as you're inhaling hot gas, the oropharynx absorbs a lot of that heat. And you'll see it. If you look in the mouth, if the mouth is completely dry, then you've got to think what's going on with the glottis, subglottis. As you intubate them, you can see whether or not it's starting to slough because it usually starts swelling within about three, four hours. If you're finding mucosa starting to slough, then you're, you know you're in trouble because once you tube them and then you're going to have a look, do you bronch them early? So you bronch them early and you want to see, you know, certainly with superheated gases, whether anything distal to the bifurcation, is that sloughing? Is it ulcerated? What is it red? What are you going to do? If it's a house fire, going back to the original scenario, how far does that soot carry down? And I'm not quite convinced by the values of uh, bicarb irrigation because everything's swollen and everything's flooded. House fires, think about carbon monoxide after you've done your blood gas because they may or may not be on 100% oxygen in the ambulance coming through. Once they arrive, check your blood gas and work out time backwards and look at your carboxyhemoglobin. So uh, it's all basics, but in terms of cyanide poisoning coming back, uh, you only really see it in very high carboxyhemoglobin. I've never seen a cyanide poisoning in someone who, who's got a, lar- a low C carboxyhemoglobin. Carbon monoxide poisoning, is, there, is it sort of quite as common as maybe you think it is? Yeah, I think it is actually, because if you imagine a house fire, quite a lot of these scenarios is something smoldering for a while. It doesn't have to be the sofa. It could be anything. Patient drunk or on drugs, something set fire. They come in hours after the event, extricated by the fire service, cold with a significant inhalation injury. You put a tube down, you bronk them, and everything's sloughed off. There's a lot of soot. And yeah, definitely think about that. It must cause quite significant problems for these patients and, and their management of carbon monoxide, sort of extensive carbon monoxide. Yeah, I think it does, but it's it's just a sign of what else is going on with their airway. I think airway management, looking at what's coming up, how much you suction them, what sort of uh, ventilatory regimes you can manage to keep them alive. I think working out how that changes on a day-to-day basis, planning do they need a tracheostomy? When do you do it? Do they have a perk? When do you do it? Do they need it? Can you extubate them at week two, ideally? If you can extubate them early, that's the best way. Are they producing so much secretions that it's going to be difficult to extubate them? How do you wean them? What are your weaning regimes? All of that comes into play. But the first four or five days are probably critical because that's the most swollen they're going to be. and it's all about airway protection and about choosing a regime whereby you can manage to ventilate them after you've given them so much fluid. In terms of ventilation strategies, anything particularly different for these patients at all? I think, uh, first off, if you can get a big tube in, then ideally you can keep the ventilatory pressures down. From my point of view, if I've got a big chest burn, uh, then what happens is if you've got a burn on the chest, all the proteins coagulate and you've got leather. Okay, so you imagine you've got a big leather band around the chest. You're not going to expand. If you excise that, then they should ventilate at normal pressures. The problems are 
working out how to oxygenate them when their lungs are flooded or if they've got an inhalation type injury or a barotrauma. And do you prone them? Do you prone them early? Do you try and uh, sort of limit dead space? Should you put a tracheostomy in? All of these are a discussion. You talked about fluids earlier and frankly incredible amounts of fluids that these patients are getting. So you, you said about using the, the modified Parkland formula. Everyone talks about resuscitation regimes and fluids. And initially, when I started training, we were resuscitating with a lot of colloid. And then the Cochrane report on major trauma came out. And overnight, pretty much human albumin sort of got stopped. And we moved to a crystalloid-based sort of resuscitation regime. And there are pros and cons of colloid versus crystalloid. When you move to a crystalloid, then not saying that you don't get this from colloid, but you get a lot more third spacing. So the current practice around the UK is Parklands. Okay, so that this is the resuscitation regime, which every person knows. And what that mean, means is four mils uh, is modified as two to four mils. So four mils times the weight of the patient times a percentage of burn. So, and you give half of that in the first eight hours and the rest in the last 16. Now, that regime was, was initially done in a paper by Shire from the Parkland Memorial Hospital in, I think it was the late 60s. And as to why it's at eight hours and at 16 hours, it's never been clear. But always that comes out of it is at the end, patients have had probably too much fluid. So they're flooded. So the modified Parklands is two to four mils. And I know that a lot of burns units in Scandinavia moved to the two mils. And the problem is maintaining tissue perfusion and looking at how they're peeing. So assuming good renal physiology, then you should be aiming to be peeing one to two mils an hour per kilo. But sometimes you get way over that. And so if you third space from there, then everything swells up. Now, remember, you're going to have a massive surge response. You've got all this necrotic stuff and dead tissue all the way around you. You've got an insult basically from trauma. Your surge response is super high. What happens is everything becomes super leaky. So you release a load of histamines, platelets degranulate, everything becomes leaky. So not only your alveolar become leaky, but all your capillaries become leaky. So if everything becomes leaky in your third space, then your intravascular volume drops. And so if your intravascular volume drops, how does that change? And it's usually after hour 12 post-burn does it start to tighten up. But by that stage, you might have liters in your third space, and it's not a small amount. Yeah. So... If you think of it, say, for example, you've got a 100-kilogram man. Okay, I'll give you an example. 100-kilogram man, 80% burn. So that's not an unusual thing that we would see. If you take that and you multiply by four, in 24 hours, when you do the maths, you're going to be giving this one patient 32 litres of fluid. Okay, 
if I gave you 32 liters of fluid, you wouldn't be happy, you know? So can you imagine if I give someone 32 liters and then say, oh, let's go to theater now, you as the intensivist or as the anesthetist are not going to be happy. Let's uh, take them to theater, excise everything, and we'll have 15 units cross-matched. That's not a recipe for a safe patient. But if you imagine you get them early and you're starting on this sort of resus regime and you get into theater and you take off all of their dead stuff, then before they swell up and then you don't touch them for about five, six days. You can give them inotropes. You can get them cardiovascularly a bit more stable. You can look at their fluid management from a bit more of a top-down view. You can work out whether or not they need filtering. And, you know, that's obviously very much a judgment call. I think the advent of citrate has made a huge difference yeah. in intensive care management for these sort of patients. And looking at when and how you filter them uh, if they need that. And from a basic physiology point of view, I think my my view on things is the earlier you remove it, the better. I'm not sure how much you can modify the surge response, but I think they're less likely to become septic. And I think if you imagine that someone's got a lot of dead stuff on them, all that's going to happen is going to rot if you don't take it off. So if you take it off, there are advantages. And if you take it off early, which I would call super early excision, within the first 24 hours, they usually do better. Um, Just coming back to fluids, we're not using albumin for burns? No, I I think since the Cochrane report, um, looking at major trauma and burns and saying that using human albumin solution is probably hazardous. Mind you, looking at it back, uh, I think a lot of the suppositions made in the original report were probably false. But basically overnight, we stopped using human albumin and moved to more of a crystalloid-based resuscitation regime. So most burn centers went to Parklands. So if you if you think you're you're going to use parklands, then it's four times percentage of burn times weight of patients. So you're looking at giving someone 30, 40 liters of fluid in 24 hours. And when you're looking at that sort of scenario, that's a huge amount of fluid. Think about sort of later on in the, in the patient's journey after they've, they've sort of arrived on the ITU. Assuming nutrition is is it's quite important. It, yeah, yeah, it is. I think NG tube feeding okay. straight away yeah. is really important. I think what you want to do is is make sure the gut still works. Because if you've got even a trickle of, of food going in, then you will keep blood supply to the gut. And what you do not want is translocation of bacteria and generalized sepsis. So if you put an NG tube in, great that makes a huge difference start feeding early that's a huge difference but the earlier you start it then probably the more protective it is and you know ng tube feeding it doesn't have to be a big tube but just start and feeding on a continuous their caloric requirements are massive 
So after after 48 hours, they become extremely catabolic. So the more you can give them, and the question is, do you want to give them anabolic steroids? Oxandrolone is uh, now used because you lose a lot of huge amount of muscle mass. You know, you think about these patients, they're massively catabolic. They've come into the catabolic phase after their surge response. You know, they're excised, they're grafted, they're breaking down protein, they're not moving, they're in, in bed all the time, they're constantly turned. The sooner you, you keep on with their metabolism doesn't re return to normal for at least a year and a half, which is crazy, but their caloric requirements are huge. Uh, we're just reaching the end now, but are there any final points you'd like to stress? What you do initially has a big impact on what happens day one, day two, day 10. So if you start off right, then you put the patient the best chance to survive. If you start off wrong, even with the best of intentions, then the patient's fighting. Sanjay, that's been absolutely fantastic. Um, thank you. That's yeah, it's all been really interesting. Thank you very much.